Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's my pleasure to have Dale Dupree, who is leader of the Sales Rebellion. Dale, welcome. Marcus, thanks for having me on, bro. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. Tell me, could you give 90 seconds about your journey to get to where you are? Yes. I can do less than that even if you'd like, but it starts in 1984. My father founded his first copier firm. I was born a year later with Tona running in my veins. I rebelled against the idea of working for him. However, I went into the music industry at 17 years old. I started playing in a band more amateurly and it turned into a professional gig as we were signed to a record label, which turned into a major record label, Warner Brothers Music Group. And around 21, 22 years old, I decided that the culture and music was not exactly what I wanted for a long-term look at my life, drugs, alcohol. I wanted to be committed to one woman as well, too. My, my wife that I've been with for 13 years, been together with for 17 this August. And so I made some hard decisions for myself to turn away from my dream of becoming a rock star to going back and selling copy machines since that toner was already thick in my blood as it was. Um, and in the process of doing that, I figured I'd get a couple years sales experience and I would end up somewhere else. 14 years later, <laughs> I quit the copier industry and founded the Sales Rebellion. But in, in the mix of that 14 years, I sucked. I became better. I became the best. I became the VP of sales and even had management roles as well, too, in there as well. So I, I, I did the whole journey. I did it all. You could label me as the guy that went and lived the American dream inside of the economic system of the copier world. However, the it's not much of a dream at all. It's a nightmare more than anything, to be quite frank with you. But I loved the challenge of selling a commodity product, which is what put me into the place that I am today and caused me to start the sales rebellion because the copier industry, anybody listening, and most industries in general in sales are very pushy. They're very egotistical. When it comes to the sales rep themselves, they're very toxic and they don't have the buyer in mind. They also don't have a community in mind that they're trying to build. And so I saw a gap and I decided to fill it. Excellent. I, I know you and I are quite closely aligned in terms of philosophy, but let, let's start out with the values that you teach your clients. What, what are the values that are really inherently important for great salesmanship? Yeah, we up front, one of the first things that we tackle is vulnerability and authenticity. And you can't have one without the other. And so well, up front, we, we challenge people to think about who they really are are in regards to how they wear that externally. Are you what you say you are? Are you who you tell yourself that you are? And because we have that challenge at the forefront of our training and development programs, whether it's with individual contributors or it's with entire teams inside of organizations, we get a pretty raw answer from people. And within the first couple of weeks, typically people have found one or the other. And by finding one, they can find the other, right? Like I just said. And getting to that place in particular it's the foundation of their sales career. And that's what we're looking to develop with somebody in regards to their success. We want a foundation first. We want a place that we can come back to and say, here's where we laid the groundwork. And so those two principles are two of the most important, I would say. Very interesting. Okay, so let's move on to sales ethics. What do you teach salespeople right from the get-go about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable in sales? Yeah, we teach people over products and community over commissions check. I mean, those are the first two places that we go with folks that it's okay to make money and it's okay to love what you sell, but it's not okay to prioritize those things over somebody else's experience and over somebody else, the value that somebody else needs you to bring to the table to create for them in the first place. So when it comes to morals and ethics, it's not even about drawing a line in between the two. It's about recognizing that there's a good way to sell and there's a bad way to sell. And that there's a staunch difference in between, but they can both lead to success, Marcus. And that's the problem with sales is there's people making half a million to a million dollars a year selling as bad salespeople. But I'll tell you right now, they don't have a very good reputation. And so that's what we focus on, a long-term look and not a short-term instant gratification concept. Absolutely. So again, one of the most important things I believe is that we exist because of the customer, not in spite of them. And if we are going to be successful and have a long-term career where we're not having to constantly go out and hunt for new people because we've burnt our bridges with the ones that we've sold to, then we need to think as the customer. 
in your world, what does that mean? How does that translate into behavior, attitudes, and tactics? Yeah, the mindset is pretty simple. One of the most important behaviors is active listening. Active listening allows you to, it's not this concept of you should talk 10% of the time. It's this concept of, wait, so if you're listening 90% of the time, how are you listening? Are you just trying to agendistically find key points and triggers that the prospect's giving you in order to smack them, you know, and to get the sale faster and to hurt them even more in regards to the pain that they're feeling? You know, that notion of like digging your fingers deep into the pain and saying, is this, you want me to fix this? Do you want, you want me to sew this up? I can do that for you. But a more holistic approach, an active listening approach, which actually allows you to dive deeper with the prospect as well and to help them to even recognize that a lot of the what's in existence is because of their own fault in some cases, or it's because of the fault of the decision that they made prior to, which they have to own. If they trusted somebody that screwed them over, right? For example, just something specific and, and, and small to kind of clarify what it is that I'm saying. But so being transparent about their last decision is more important than sitting back and saying, oh, you have a problem, let me fix it. Because you have to get to the root cause of the issue. Realistically, it's emotional. And so we take this emotional perspective and we look at the intelligence and we say, if we can get people feeling emotionally about anything, they're going to say to their head and to the intelligence side, let's make this work. <laughs> Instead of the opposite direction of this doesn't make sense, how do I feel about it, right? It is the reverse effect, which is how people buy. And so it, it is also a mindset of servant leadership more than anything. How can I be of service? Service means sometimes walking away from the deal too, Marcus. So it's it's a bigger picture perspective for, for sales reps. And not only being able to walk away, but to recommend a competitor. That, that really takes someone who's fully integrated and is secure. But right. what I see a lot of is that because salespeople are under massive pressure from above and they have avoided prospecting or their pipeline is weak, empty, and consistent, then what they tend to do is play the game of, let's see how much we can squeeze the customer for. And they use their technique as a weapon instead of a shield. And I think that's really fundamentally important that the salesperson is there to serve. Would you mind defining what you see as service? My best example instead of saying how I feel about it, is to tell the tale of my father, Curtis Dupree, who raised me throughout my life, I should say, during the time that he was raising me, ran a business. And there's a lot of stories about kids and working for their mom and dad, right? But I believe mine to be very unique because from the moment that I ever stepped foot in my father's business, I knew that it was different especially because I, I had tons of other friends because of my father's circles even and where we lived and who we were that also owned businesses. They're very entrepreneurialistic. And so I'd seen their businesses as well too. And I always caught this vibe in my dad's office, right? Which was that the man that was the CEO of that organization did not look at himself as the CEO. He looked at himself as somebody that was an enabler, somebody that was a protector and somebody that was a servant. And so over the course of my life, I watched my dad not just do things like treat a customer right, for example, in 2007 and 2008, when we were having the economic collapse, most people were out picking up copiers from people that weren't paying bills. My dad was showing up at their office with the trailer, but not getting the copy machine. Instead saying, what can we do to leave it here? How can we serve you? Do you still need it? And coming to an agreement with them to say, look, I know you don't have your $500 right this instance. And we'll, we won't be able to provide you with certain things because of our cash flow. But man, we duct tape is pretty cheap and screwdrivers are already in, in the cars. And so we'll come and do it as best as we can, but don't forget about us as well too. And it wasn't about the reciprocation as much as understand that there's some things we'll be limited to. Watching that unfold was frustrating as a young man because I'm thinking we need the money, but it was a great lesson, especially as I became more of an adult to see who my father was. And to, and to give a side example, I also watched my dad. I remember being 10 years old. My sister was about 13, sitting in the front seat, me in the back. Um, and my dad said, jump in the back seat to my sister. And he pulled over to the side of the road and let a, a, a man that was hitchhiking into the car, right? He didn't, no questions asked, just let him ride in. So where can I take you, bro? How can I serve you? And it's funny when my dad used to tell the story when we were older and to hear him talk about that, because we saw confidence and 
servant leadership, but he's he was very vulnerable when he would tell that story even and say, I don't know what I was thinking letting this man in my car, but I had a gut feeling. I was being tugged to do something for this person at this point. And I was being told that this will make you uncomfortable and this was is not necessarily the choice that other people make. And so the, the bottom line to servant leadership is this. It's not what we do and how we're recognized in the community as much as it is what we do when the door is closed and no one is looking. That's a fabulous example and absolutely on the money. I think too often people are overtly concerned about how other people will perceive them. But what you do in private, what you do when no one is looking, when there's no spotlight and when there's no audience really matters. And living those values is really key in everything that you do, because that comes across when you see people doing it as a move, it clearly isn't authentic. It's some, you know, it's a tactic. But when you live those values, then people recognize it. And the best salespeople I've ever met, they're all about serving their customer. And they recognize that their job is to serve their community as well. So let's explore community a little bit more. As You mentioned it right at the top of the call. Who is your community and why do you serve them? Typically, my community consists of two types of people. The first type of, of individual are those that know thyself and that are hyper aware of who they are. And, and because of that, they see what it, what's attracted to them about the sales rebellion is this idea and the mindset in which we authentically wear ourselves on our own sleeve. And that doesn't just go for me. That's all my coaches from their struggles to their, and to their defeats all the way up to their victories, right? That all my coaches are very vulnerable in the way that they look at their life, their successes, and how it is that they're playing out their steps. The second type of people, though, are the lost and the weary and the broken. And each one of those is a little bit different from the other. Those aren't all words that mean the same thing. Some of them are top producers and performers, but they're struggling with addiction. And they're struggling with choices that they're making behind people's backs and that no one knows about. And they need an ear. They need a shoulder in those moments. There are people that are kind of at the middle inside of their sales career as well, too. Ah, I'm doing okay. I just wish I could do better, I'm, I'm, but I'm not doing worse. That that need, again, a type of support system specifically where they can go and express themselves. And they can, they can have somebody listen actively to what it is that's going on in their life and to be able not just to give them advice. And advice usually is the last thing that I give them as much as it is to give them encouragement toward the decisions that they already know they need to make in the first place. And the last of, the, of that group are just the folks that <laughs> they just need help, man. They just need help. And time and time again, they've reached out to people and, and individuals and said, hey, can I get help? But what those people hear is they hear, oh, you don't want to pay me for my advice. And all my life, bro, outside of my father and some of my most intimate mentors, people have always told me, don't give away yourself for free. Don't not sell your product. Don't ever give somebody something without getting something in return. I don't believe in any of that bullshit, Marcus. For me personally, it's about those moments that really define who we are, where we say, you know what, I'll take a call with you on a Saturday at seven in the morning. How's that? Because I can squeeze you into that part of my schedule and not have to worry about butting into my time with my family, but I can serve you in that point. So my community, my tribe, the people that I surround myself with is everybody and anybody in between. <laughs> so let's take a moment to look at management, because I think I rag on salespeople a lot because there are an awful lot of very bad salespeople out there. But in most of their cases, it genuinely isn't their fault. I think our five biggest competitors are fear, apathy, ignorance, denial, and ego. And ignorance is a huge player in all of that. They just don't know what they don't know. And they're being encouraged by managers to do some really ghastly, awful things. Why is it that so few managers are up to the job of actually being managers? Man, you're opening up a can right here. Let me give a perspective because I think there's a lot of answers to this. But let me give a perspective, the one that a lot of people tend to kind of go to anyway, but I'm going to give a little bit of a twist on it, which is that most people that are promoted into a management role as a resume builder are very good sales reps. They have top of the team this year, quota crusher that year. They're very good sales reps. They're very good at the job itself that they're being brought in to manage. Doesn't mean that they're good with people. 
right? Doesn't mean that they're actually really any better than anybody else when it comes to helping inside of the department that they've been called up to help. And so it's this concept, is that when they get into that position, typically the first thing that happens is, I worked for the last five years to get here, and now I never have to do any of the things I did. It's a whole new set of, of issues, right? And I get to sit in front of a computer, not be in the field, they disconnect. Yeah. And because they disconnect and they slowly disconnect with the buyer, they slowly start to forget what it was like they slowly start to lose track of what makes them authentic and human at the beginning and the end of the day. And they become much more ingrained and focused on the metrics and the numbers. And because of those two things, we have a failed sales system altogether. And I don't care if you're the top producer. And I don't care if you're a manager that has 25 people underneath you that are kicking butt, taking names, writing a bunch of numbers. You're stressing them out. You're making their lives miserable every time you put a number on the board and then look at the other guy that wasn't on the top, that wasn't the top and isn't anymore and go, what are you going to do about it? There's no competition in that, right? Those are just flashy ways for you to pretend like you're a leader by invoking, you know, essentially violence in the workplace, right? <laughs> like yeah. getting people so riled up, right? So that's a big picture perspective that I have of it. Well, I, I think I would go a little bit further than that because often the top producer is tapped on the shoulder when the boss gets fired and told, Dale, you're the boss now. And they have no runway. They have no training. We released a survey in January this year, and the conclusion was that only 6% of sales managers globally are qualified for the role. 94% are not. But 46% of companies claimed that they gave managers training. But the training is non-existent. They don't have a runway to learn how to be a manager. So they're not coaching and training and developing junior salespeople. They're not running meetings. They're not doing ride-alongs. They never learn how to coach. And the single biggest defining factor between teams that succeed and teams that don't is whether the manager coaches well and consistently. If a manager coaches for three to three and a half hours per month per rep, the average quota attainment is 105%. Where managers coach less than or not at all, the average quota attainment is 40 to 60%. And Google did a lovely study called Project Oxygen, which is well worth reading up about. And the number one defining factor of what makes a great manager is that the other people in the team recommend joining the team to people they know, like, and care about. Being able to do the job came eighth in the hierarchy of 10 or 12 different criteria. So they don't have to be a great salesperson because the qualities required are massively different. To be a yes. top producer, you have to want to win and you have to want to compete. And you have to want to produce and see your name at the top of the leaderboard. To be a great manager, you have to want other people to compete and to produce and to hit that the team target. And the skills are wildly different. The mindset is wildly different. So this, then let's open the can of worms just a little bit more. And let's investigate why sales leadership is so lacking in understanding and awareness of the pressure, the misguided pressure that they are creating and the trajectory that they are taking salespeople and sales managers on which then it negatively impacts the customer. Why, after all this time, despite the fact we've seen company after company struggle with the revolving door, burnout, mental health issues, leadership still hasn't got it? I think that your word early on in, in the statement of the sentence that, that instead of the question of awareness is the most important thing to remember is that awareness of self, awareness of others, and awareness of situations are three very important pieces of the puzzle, and they are what create success. They are also the problem with the world. When you're in the left-hand lane in the United States, and you're driving 90 miles an hour, and you pull up behind somebody doing 70, and you're just on their butt, you know, waiting for them to get out of your way, but they have no idea you're even behind them in the first place or that they're inconveniencing you and you have to get over to the right, pass them and squeal back in front of them and make yourself known. There's two sets of awareness being missed there. And it's the same kind of awareness that sales leaders need inside of a bullpen. One is, is that the person that's driving up so fast is only, they only care about what it is that they need done and the rules, nothing else. And when they pass that person, they typically flick them off and yell a few things, right? But what if 
Instead, they pulled up next to him and rolled down the window and said, hey, I just wanted to make you aware that you're not supposed to be in this lane when you're going this fast. And it's okay if you don't understand why. I just wanted to make sure that you were aware real quick. I hope you have a nice day and rolled past him. This idea of meeting people where they are, having zero expectations and no assumptions around anything that you ever do whatsoever. Because the person that you're speaking to will hear you differently because of those things. They will hear you as being selfish, as being rude, as being maniacal, as being manipulative, as being toxic. And that's what leads to these broken bullpens in the first place. It starts with a heart issue more than it does anything else. And people are so afraid to talk about this kind of stuff because it's not business, right? It's too personal. And we should keep that out of business. Well, guess what? Your commission check pays your bills, puts a house over your head, pays for the security and safety of your family and allows you to serve the community. So if that's not personal, I don't know what is. And that's the problem. Sales leaders have disconnected who they are from their role because they have to, quote unquote, in order to be the best. And that's that's a crock. I call bullshit on it every time I see it. And I believe that it's something that we have to get away from. Meet people where they are. Stop leading from the front or leading from the back and start leading arms locked side to side your rebellion directly into the field with a level head right alongside of the people that already already feel it. That brings me to my next question very neatly. So it's almost like this was planned. Ride-alongs and speaking to the customer at a leadership level and a managerial level. Why did so many managers spend their time disconnected from the customer and leaders, CEOs, CMOs, all those guys, why are they not out there speaking to customers, going on customer meetings, and actually listening to what the customers have to say? This one always boggles my mind, dude. This question boggles my mind. The answers boggle my mind. The only this is the the fact of the matter is selfishness more than anything. It's power. People once they get into this company position of making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year as a salary, they realize it doesn't matter if they get their bonus anymore. It doesn't matter if the if the team's really producing the way that they need them to to begin with, because they can just fire them and hire more people, and they can take advantage of this instant gratification concept of bringing somebody from college knowing that they can crack the whip, make them work hard, instill fear and and doubt into their walk in order to make them better. You know, that's the biggest crock on top of everything else that that we've been talking about when it comes to leadership and the way that they look at their own specific futures. That they think, dude, if I can just be here for 10 years and make this half a mil, I'm good. I don't need anything else. I'll buy an apartment complex. It'll be my retirement, right? I mean, this is the mindset of most of these types of leaders. I've seen it a million times. And people out there that want to deny it, go right ahead, right? I've been in your circles. I've been around the people that are doing these things. I've seen how they have three or four different investments, other companies that they run outside of this group that they are supposed to care about and be helping in the first place. They care more about themselves than anything else. Money and power, that's it. It doesn't matter about the person. It doesn't matter about the people. And that's why, like you said, that the turnover rates are so high and that we continue to struggle with these things because no one cares. And there's only 10 of them up there, dude. You know, It doesn't matter if there's 50 people in the bullpen. There's only 10 people up at the top that are making these decisions. And because it's not big and convoluted, sometimes it's less than that, right? Sometimes it's five. Sometimes it's three. And because of these things, it, it creates that power struggle. That hunger is quenched every day, regardless of whether or not the company is doing things the way that somebody would want it to be done. And their mindset around fixing it is, you're fired and we'll get somebody else to take your place. Well, this also is fueled by a couple of other things that I see, certainly in the tech space. One is the private equity and venture capital toxin, where private equity, VC are pushing businesses to grow at the expense of longevity. And they're not creating sustainable, viable businesses. What they're creating is a short-term cash cow. But what they're fueling is massive debt, enormous pressure. And this is often manifested in over-assignment of quota. So if you've got a 20 million target, and uh, when you add up all the salespeople's quotas, they add up to 30 million, and you've got a few, one or two might hit their quota, but the majority don't. And they're running around like blue-assed flies. They're burnt out. They're stressed. The owner, the CFO, they're thinking of 
bottle of champagne and uh, knocking that back because they've hit their number. The investors are happy because they've hit their ludicrous threats target. But the people who make them successful are burning out, unhappy, addicted, stressed, depressed. And that, that cannot possibly be sustainable, which is why you see such massive failure rates. So you know, given that we know this is going on, again, I'm pretty sure I, I can guess your answer, but why do people still keep going for private equity and uh, fall for this lie? Shortcuts. <laughs> I mean, it's safe. there's safety in it. There's, there's a proven system around it. There is success in line in it regardless of the failures. So it's a perception. Well, ah, I think they've won the PR exercise. I don't think the reality is that because the number right. of private equity firms and VCs that burn through companies, you know, there might be 40 companies in a fund that they've invested in. Three might make it. The other 37 die on the vine and all those uh, livelihoods are lost. People right. lose their shirt. They rack up vast amounts of debt because in order to make their money, the private equity company needs to be able to have one or two unicorns and elephants get uh, come through so that they can get their investors their money back. But most of these, uh, these private equity-backed companies are being sold now to other private equity companies, and it's a fiddle. So I have uh, a company in my stable that I need to get rid of. So I phone you up and say, Dale, buy this off me, and in 18 months' time, I'll buy two companies off you. So now I have your cash, which I can then exit the fund, pay my investors back, raise the next fund, and then once I've raised the next fund, I'm back to you and I'll buy a couple of your companies. It's a cartel. A hundred percent. It's rarely, rarely it doesn't fall outside of that box that you just talked about in regards to the way that those, co- that those companies are started and they operate, that they all are the good old boy network at the end of the day. Even if, even if it's someone new coming into the space, it's someone that's been picked and chosen in the first place. So again, it's, it is all perception-based. We, we see it a different way because we understand it. The people internally, they don't care. And they allow their perception to dictate that. In the first place, they don't care about people. They see what they get out of it. And what they get out of it is what you just said, that revolving door. Even if they have a couple of failures, they'll get some money off of it. They'll start something new and they'll move on to the next. And then they'll come back to you most likely. And so that's where you see the reciprocation. Well, they'll be back and they'll buy a couple off me. We'll just keep helping each other out. Meanwhile, these hundreds of people can continue to, to wonder what they're doing with their life because we didn't lead them right because we didn't give them the proper tools to succeed, because we don't care about them. We only care about the mark. We only care about whether or not we went publicly traded with this organization. That's it. That's all we care about. So it comes down to people and it comes down to perceptions. But I will say that there are some good stories. You know, there are some people that, that did happen to find, you know, somebody trying to offload a company and, and away from another VC that found an entrepreneur even. And the success stories that come from that market are insane. And that's the opposite of what you're talking about though, right? So when people get out of it and they move on and they start to create the success that's necessary in regards to the mindset, well, this isn't working because we suck, right? Actually sitting back and admitting those things. We're not good at this. We need people to be more involved, more emotionally charged, to care about the processes and and people inside of this company and not just the dollars that it's producing. Success comes from that. So let's investigate this then. The sales profession by and large, is mostly male-dominated. Founders are mostly men. They are mostly white, and we don't have a great track record historically of investing in female or ethnically founded companies, which means that we're missing out on a massive talent pool. What the hell's going on there? Security, right, more than anything. It's this idea of yeah, this is idea of somebody calling me up when I have a baby, my son, and saying, oh, by the way, you know, thanks for populating the white race, right? That stuff exists. It exists, exists in your own circles. And maybe it's a joke, but it's those types of things that cause us to have a narrow mindset and to continue to sit back and say that these are the things that work for me. And I don't care about how anybody else feels about it. I'm also afraid of what could happen if these other types of people were running companies. Right. I'm not afraid of that whatsoever. 
I'm not afraid of the diversity. I'm not afraid of the concept of inclusion. I've seen nothing but success come from it. I'm not afraid of someone disagreeing with my political beliefs because I love them and I'll meet them where they are. And I'll never be angry at them for not thinking that I'm right. And that's the problem with people today in general. And it's a generational problem more than anything. The millennials are here and Gen Z is coming. And that's a big picture perspective, I believe, that will start to change things. Because I don't believe that the majority of who will be on this earth will be white men anymore at that, let alone America, right? And the idea of that, you know, it might freak some people out or it might sound unfair or it might sound like I'm some kind of like white, you know, I got some kind of white guilt or, or whatnot, like... I believe in who I am, bro, and I believe in diversity. There's nothing about guilt here. It's the idea of sitting back and saying, what are we doing to make an impact? And people could sit around all day and say, oh, I gave money to the NAACP. I don't care. Did you go in the street? Did you head to those neighborhoods? Did you serve at the Boys and Girls Club and, and talk to those kids and ask them how they feel about these things and become empathetic in these moments? Because if you don't, there will be no change. You can never have their perspective. You can never understand what they're going through. And so you can never see the value of someone like that who you don't recognize and so it scares you, running a business, running a company and having the kind of credentials needed you know, by be coming up you know, through mentorship, through people like us. <laughs> it's that simple. And, being, and us being willing to hand it over right? I, I dare somebody to come into the sales rebellion and take my job. That's a minority woman, black or brown. I dare somebody to do it. I dare you because I will let you. <laughs> so let's go. You know, But Absolutely. that's the mindset that people need. People need that mindset to be able to find the right folks. And this is the thing is that people say, well, you can't just hire somebody just because they're black. That's not the point. The point is, is that you actively go out and look for it instead of sitting back and saying, you know, oh, well, this, you know, they, they just don't come to me. They don't, they don't come to me. Well, they don't come to you because you don't look for them. <laughs> so there's, and, a, big, also, there's a big well, argument here. But also, I think there's a lot of unconscious bias in our language. If you think about the kind of adverts for jobs in tech companies, I remember seeing one, my wife and I just had a conversation about it this afternoon. And the advert ran something along the lines of, we've got a fridge full of beer, we've got uh, foosball and ping pong and all of this kind of stuff. Now, that's not going to appeal to women. That's the kind of thing that appeals to young men. And the unconscious bias that's intrinsic within our language, within the cultures of our business. And I think one of the really interesting things from the conversations I've been having with some phenomenally successful people is that you need to plan out the bias. You need to plan out the subjectivity in your business, in your marketing, in your communications. And you have to look at the, uh, the bigger picture. But to do that takes an enormous amount of courage. It requires you to look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, is this my version of reality really true? And it forces you to be very authentic. And that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people. I know certainly uh, until I became more aware of these biases and I started asking myself questions like, what if the opposite were true? What if my bias is preventing me from being able to see uh, what's really going on? And I found that having to intentionally connect with and engage with people whose opinions wildly differ from mine, and sometimes I find deeply offensive, but not judging them for them because you know a, a lot of people's perception is driven by where they are. And if you don't meet them there and you don't listen and you don't engage in conversation, you're just going to spend your time prejudging. And prejudgment is the foundation of prejudice. So tell me this, what are the three questions that owners and founders should be asking, but they're not? around how to build a rock-solid sales organization that genuinely serves the customer and serves the people who will make them successful? You know, I, my, my boy, Ned Eric, who is one of my first students ever at the Sales Rebellion, he literally was my first student um, at the Sales Rebellion. And, and now he's, he is way up in the world at this point. He's running, a, helping run a company, their growth, both through marketing and through sales. He's a hybrid, right? And I like the idea of the way that he always talks about the foundation of 
building those processes around not just your perception of what you think the market looks like and what the market dictates and wants, but the actual facts, hearing from the, from the horse's mouth. That being the first place to start. And a lot of people say, well, no, duh. Well, who does it? Show me a company that does it and I will gladly stop talking about it, right? And instead just start pushing people toward those folks. And sure, there are a couple out there that I can think of, but they're not loud enough. And they have also, in the process of being so different, they've just done it just to be different, right? That's another issue. The sales rebellion, people say it all the time. They're like, are you rebelling because you don't agree with what people are saying? And I, that's a misconception. It's not that we don't agree. It's that we believe in a rebellion built on hope. We believe that there is a better way than how it's being done. It's not about the negativity. It's not about the bad. There's plenty of it out there. We could be angry about it. We're talking about it right now, but instead we believe that we fuel change and that we can bring it if we commit to it. And so the second thing I would tell people, it's something really simplistic, but it's actionable advice, is to find in, inside of local universities, find the next generation. And you don't have to hire your entire fleet of admins and sales people and marketers. You don't have to hire every single person right out of a university, but find one for every other department, right? And be very, very thoughtful around the inclusivity of your company. And and so don't, again, don't sit back and say, I'm just hiring this person because they're a minority, but seek the minority and ask them if they're interested and find out if they're better than the white guy that you picked out already, right? Because you found him on LinkedIn and he's so clean cut and he feels safe, right? I challenge that thought process. I challenge it because you're not giving someone else the opportunity to become better. My dad hired meth addicts. My dad hired men that that came out of the prison system that had been convicted for third degree murder. My dad hired women that had been that were victims of abuse, right? My dad thoughtfully approached the marketplace and said, not just how can I find the best person, but how can I give someone the chance to shine? And I'm going to tell you right now that at my father's funeral, the last thing I heard was somebody coming to me and complaining about their relationship with my father, the thousand plus people that were there, right? In a room that held 900. It was one of the most intense experiences of my entire life. And there's your proof. People that sit back and talk about, I want a legacy, prove it, right? And my father wasn't somebody that sat back and said, I want a legacy. He just acted on it in the first place. So act on it. You know the drill. Everybody listening knows the drill. I don't have to tell you how to do these things. You know exactly where to go and how to get it done. Now is the time to choose. Have you come across Delancey Street? No. Delancey Street is a rehabilitation organization that is run by a woman called Mimi Silva. And they have a 98% success rate in uh, rehabilitating criminals. And so within a week of joining, the black gang leader is mentoring a white supremacist. And a week later, the white supremacist is dealing with a triad, a gang member. And what's really fascinating is by creating an environment which forces people to challenge their own beliefs, to serve others, particularly people who ordinarily they would have judged, who they would have felt angered or threatened by. And what's really interesting is they run a removals business and a restaurant where they're taking people's credit cards and they're actually going into their homes and moving their, all of their possessions. And they have only a 2% recidivism rate. Now, this again is really fascinating because what you see is that where organizations are led by someone who is visionary enough to be able to see the change and see the intrinsic inherent good in people, then they draw that out. I think from a a leadership perspective, when you're running a business, you are there to serve. You are there to create the next generation of leaders. And like you were saying, I dare anybody to come and take my job. I would be delighted that I make myself redundant because I think one of the challenges that so many people face is getting out of their own way because of that narrative and that negative scripting and the fear of loss. And what that does is it creates a culture or an environment where people are afraid to risk. And in not risking, they actually put themselves in a higher probability position of losing everything. So what do you teach your clients about risk? We say no risk, no reward. 
And I know that's it's kind of an old saying and probably cliche to some extent as well, too, but we mean it. We're not talking about little risks either. In my career, when I created a personal brand, I went against the grain of the entire industry, not just my company and the way that they ran their business. I went against the entire industry. And because it was authentic to who I was, and I would not take a knee to somebody else's way of life and how they looked at what should happen. Instead, I said, wait a second. If 17 other salespeople are calling on these same prospects from different companies, and then the 30, 40 odd other salespeople on top of that in other industries, why in God's name would they take my call in the first place? And what kind of experience are we giving people? And to sit back and to take those things into account, I knew I had to risk. I knew I had to, to risk someone saying, you're an idiot. I had to risk someone saying, this is stupid. I had to risk someone saying, don't ever call me again. But guess what? They already say that to people inside of the little box that they made for themselves with the structure that they find so safe to begin with. And so for me, it was for every two times that I would get a negative response, I knew that that was it. That was like the cap. And that the floodgates were about to open because that's what happened every time I I started a new campaign, whether it was using QR codes to create experimental campaigns inside of the prospecting methodology, or even inside of when I had somebody in a funnel and I was working them toward the close, I was doing presentations, discoveries, every single touch point, right? Making sure that there was an experiential effect to it. And then when I left, it wasn't like anybody else leaving, right? sending the email afterwards and saying, thank you so much for your time today. No way. How about a flash mob showing up and, and singing you know, songs about thank you from the copier warrior to you instead of an email, right? That was the, the perspective that I took. And I, and I spent money. I invested into myself and I took massive risks because there were some days when it was like, uh-oh, I might not be able to pay the bills because of what I'm about to do. But I'm going to tell you right now that that is what yields the best reward because people feel that. They see that. They can see every dime you put into it. They can see every ounce of blood and sweat. And they want people to do, to do business with that bleed. That's what they want. They don't want this fake robot that sits behind a desk and dials all day and says all the right things. They want somebody that screws up. They want somebody that's vulnerable. They want somebody that bleeds just like them and that has problems just like them, but that also provides the inherent value that altruistically salespeople should carry every single day. Very good. I always teach my clients that a life without risk is a life without growth. And if you are not risking, you're not growing. And you are not competing with anybody other than who you were yesterday. And this is part of the problem because I think people are comparing themselves with other people in the field. And I've, I've found this with my clients and I've really had to focus their attention because they're comparing themselves with where I am after 35 years in sales and 17 years actually knowing what I was doing within the first month. And I'm always having to drive home the message. You're competing with who you were yesterday. And tomorrow, it's going to be the same thing. And focus on that incremental uh, improvement and concentrate on trying to serve your customers just a little bit better today than you did yesterday. And when people do that, miracles happen. I've seen people who are at 25% of quota within a year coming in at 200% because they've taken ownership of who they are and they've taken responsibility for what they do, for their behavior, and they live their values. And that's incredibly satisfying. So tell me something. Have you ever been blindsided? All the time. Give me some examples of the best lessons that you've made from your mistakes or from being blindsided. I probably got blindsided the best through prospecting methods and trying new things. For the sake of the conversation that we're having to go along with our extensive talks about leadership, I'll say one of the best blind sides that I ever received <laughs> that I got to learn a lot from was in trusting people just because I was in a bad situation and wanted out of it. That I justified that trust of people around this idea of, well, I'm not happy and I deserve better. And really it became selfish And I didn't even notice it. Instead, I kept saying, well, this is an opportunity being presented to me that if I pass up, I'll never never know what could happen here. And so it was a risk, right? But it was really, I was blindsided because I I saw no way to fail. 
but I wasn't telling myself that. I wasn't being honest with myself. I was saying, have you seen what you've built? Do you know who you are? You can do this, dude. I do believe in the confidence factor of things, but at the same time, there's also a realization or a realist, a realisticness, I should say, to certain decisions that we make. And if I really would have looked closely and I would have I would have taken the blinders off, it was already right in front of me. Com- from conversations, from doing research, even from talking to other people. And I just chose to ignore it. And so it was almost this blind side that like it was always sitting right here in front of me, like literally, but I just couldn't see it. Maybe if I, I moved it like right over to here, you know, and then one day I woke up and it was like, ah, <laughs> it's back. It's back. It's right in front of you and you suck. <laughs> I, I, th- I think you've touched on something really interesting, which is that the minute your sense of entitlement gets involved, that's where you lose perspective. And I, I see entitlement as one of the ugliest human qualities. And the minute you start saying, well, I deserve, you don't deserve. And frankly, the universe doesn't give a fuck one way or the other. It was here (laughs) first. And you will only thrive by making a genuine contribution to others in the long term. Yes, you can make some decent money. And it's not true that bad people get their comeuppance in this world. Some make it throughout their lives and they get away with it. But the reality is that in a lot of the communities that we and our clients serve, you better be ready to retire if you're going to continue screwing people over. Because reputation is very hard one. But if you're building a reputation for being someone who is a shark and is self-serving, that's going to follow you around. And in this day and age, not only do people talk, but you've got things like Glassdoor, you've got the net promoter scores, you've got reviews, and people talk. So you really have to pay attention and be there, fully present. Pay attention. Make sure that you are listening and hearing what's actually being said rather than what you want someone to say to you. And when you fuck up, make sure that you take ownership and apologize sincerely. Because I think one of the things that I see very lacking is people not taking personal responsibility, not taking ownership for their mistakes, and not being vulnerable enough to ask for forgiveness. And for me, that's been an incredible eye-opener. Because I, I remember you know, the first 17 years, I was very brittle. And I took everything very personally, and I was very sensitive to criticism. Now, it's a gift. And I, I think too few people are, have learned the value of that honest criticism uh, of constructive conflict. So I'm curious, in terms of the lessons that you've taken away from the last you know, few years of running uh, TSR, what are the best lessons that you've learned from your mistakes and your failures? I would say the biggest takeaway for me, just in reflection, because we've only been doing this for a year and three months, going on four this week, um, a year and four months. I would say the, the biggest takeaway for me is just how extremely proud I am of the people that I've been so blessed to be surrounded with and the risks that they have been willing to take with me. That one of the things that I think I realized in this venture compared to other ventures or even compared to working for organizations is that, man, it is powerful when you've got over a dozen people that are all sharing the same outlook of risk. Let's do this, right? The power in community is massive. I have learned so much even from the community that supports us, from people that just come in and post a comment on my content every once in a while to the people that show up every day. You know, there are people that show up every day to my content, which is a side note, which is funny about LinkedIn is that it'll happen for about six to eight months. And then most of those people go away because most people can't stick it out in the first place. They can't commit to something that intense for that long. That's the fact, right? So for a year and four months, I look at that as a massive feat 
of everybody being willing to risk. And even in the midst of us being able to reward ourselves, that we continue to risk and to say no to the reward. And it's not because we're trying to starve ourselves and just become so hungry that that the massive amount of success we have is inevitable. It's because we have a bigger mission. It's because we believe in the people that we are serving more so than we do than the the gratification that that we find from the service in the first place, right? We believe that the sales world is broken, right? So we have a completely different perspective on it. We're not looking to make millions as much as we're looking to give millions back, right? Uh, So at at the Sales Rebellion, we say one of our missions is to tear down castles, your castle is what we tell salespeople, and build a kingdom. Because castles keep people out. They're big and they're dark on three or four of the floors. And one of them you've never been to in years and don't even remember what was there in the first (laughs) place, right? It's this idea of a forgotten life. You built this thing and forgot about everything else that brought you there to begin with, the people, the experiences. And we never want that here. And it's why we continue to diversify, to become more inclusive, and to continue to risk in all things. And so I'll tell you this, Marcus, that if you ask me the same question in 10 years, I'll have the same answer, that we continue to risk. And that's what I learned. And that's what I have learned. So you've got a golden ticket, and you can whisper in the uh, ear of the idiot Dale, age 23, what choice bit of advice would you whisper to him to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage? Yeah, I love this question. I love that you picked 23, though, because I'm going to get a little deep with it. But I love this question because this question is interesting. This question to me is this, this concept of what could I go and, and back to and fix, essentially. But I believe that every single failure I've had has made me who I am to begin with. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, number one, I would never go back and tell myself anything because that would be cheating. But number two, if I did, let's be honest, 23-year-old Dale would sit there. I could be like, I'm from the future. This is your social security. These are the memories that I have of myself, of you, because I am you that no one knows about. See, I'm the real thing. And then to give you all the secrets of life, and 23-year-old Dale would sit there and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then, excuse me. And I'd walk out the front door and I'd jump in my car, I'd chug a beer, I'd slam it on the ground, I'd do donuts in the driveway, flicking you off through the out the window, screaming, F you, and I'd drive away as fast as I could. Because 23-year-old Dale and 23-year-old anybody is still selfish and are still in a place of maturity in their life. Even if they have advanced dramatically, they are still in a, in a spot where me is the attitude. It doesn't matter what you were taught. It doesn't matter how you were raised or what your outlook is. The development of who you are, the development of your mind, your leadership, your successes is still in progress at that point. Even if you're making a million bucks, you are still being developed. And you can look at any celebrity. You can look at any politician. You can look at anybody in their story and you can literally identify these things. But I will say this, is that at 23, I was extremely depressed. And two years later, I tried to commit suicide. And the one, so the one thing that I have always contemplated in regards to going back and telling myself something has always revolved whenever I think of the question deeper and longer outside of the interview. And I've never answered it this way. This is the first time. And it's because you said 23 and triggered me, but is this idea of, did I have to go through that? Right. In regards to, to that specific topic of suicide. And so I sit back and I think to myself, the answer is no, it truly is. And it doesn't mean that I could somehow do something to get away from it. But what it does mean is the actions that I take now, when I meet a 21 year old kid, I have these discussions with them. It's about transparency more than anything. And so it's not about going back and righting my wrong as much as it is supporting somebody else before they get to that place. Right. And being able to sit there and say, hey, listen, when you get into sales and and you graduate college, you will have your first anxiety attack ever if you didn't before. You will have it. I promise you. The moment will be different for all of you, but you will have it. And it will lead to a dark place if you allow it to. You know, and so it's it's not even again so much about going back and telling myself as much as being aware of some of those failures like that one, a massive one that could have taken me from this conversation, might not even have been here. And fixing it but through the next generation and supporting them in ways that I wasn't supported. Thank you for being so open and so vulnerable. I, I genuinely appreciate that. Tell me, what, what are you struggling with at the moment? What, what are you wrestling with? I think the biggest thing that I'm struggling with is 
it's not my self-worth because I've gotten to a place in my life where I, I understand that I am worthy and that I am enough. And, and that's just from years and years of having to express myself and hear the opinions of others and not take them as opinions either, but take them as maybe they're the, they're the truth. And to really sit back and say, maybe the reality, like you said earlier, that I'm telling myself that, that the world is, is not. And, and so because of that practice for the last 10 plus years, I believe that I'm in a different level when it comes to self-worth. But what I what I do struggle with is, am I enough for other people? That's what I struggle with. And it's that mindset of what we talked about earlier of a servant leader. Am I serving well enough? Am I serving for good? And and so I constantly ask myself the questions of, you know, am I burning out on serving others as well too? Am I enough in that capacity? Not so much the, the, the inward look as, as much as it is the outward look and my actions for others. And so I, I don't think that there's necessarily a practice or a specific <laughs> regimen that you can go through to take that type of thought away, but it, but being aware of it and speaking it out loud, and even to my my coaches and the other employees at the Rebellion, um, and sometimes my students, and being extremely transparent about it is definitely helpful because I believe we're all in this together. I believe just because you hired me and you're paying me thousands of dollars a month to teach you to become a better salesperson doesn't mean that I can't be a pile of shit sometimes because inherently I want to be good and I want to be the best, but I'm broken. No matter how you look at it, this earth is a broken place. And while, and in my time on it, I am not afraid to express those types of, of issues that I'm having. So I tell myself daily that the, the number one thing that made my dad so successful though, was his perseverance through type, those types of issues and not to settle for either side, not to say, no, I am giving enough or to say, am I giving enough? But to just constantly be persevering through both mindsets, whether in success and victory or failure and defeat. It's really interesting. One of the things that helped me through that was learning to forgive myself because the recognition that we are imperfect and that failure is inevitable in role. But I think what you've managed to capture is an inherent understanding that who you are, your identity, is separate from the roles that you fulfill. And what's really interesting is that while you express it differently, you're living and teaching the same kind of things that I do and recognizing that you are enough as a human being, but not judging yourself as a human being, but judging yourself in role and recognizing that we're all flawed and that there's always room for improvement. Okay, what are you watching, listening to, reading that you really believe other people should pay heed to? There is one book I'm reading right now called Whisper by Mark Batterson. So people that are spiritual, I would recommend it. But I, I stopped reading. This goes on crazy, Marcus. And you might roll your eyes even right here on the Zoom. But, but I stopped reading books when I started writing mine back in 2017. And the reason that I did that was because I didn't want somebody else's words to be an influence on my life. So matter of fact, somebody recommended Og Mandino, the greatest salesperson. And I, I think yeah. that's the name of it, greatest salesperson yeah, in the world. Og Mandino, greatest salesperson in the world. Yeah, in the world, in the world. So I, I have a copy of it. And I was told by some of my greatest mentors that I respect dearly, read this book, dude, read this book. And I have, and I have it because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to convict myself to, to make sure that it is my thought process and not somebody else's inside of my book, that it is the words that I've been sh called to put down more than it is somebody else's ideas. Because I do believe that even though people say all the time, they say, listen, I have an original idea. I've, I've just used a bunch of other people's and created what I've created. That I there's a creativity inside of me and an authenticity inside of me that hears that and respects it for truth, to, but not my truth. <laughs> that I sit back and go, I don't want to, wait a second. Well, how did they come up with their original thought, right? You know, oh, they stole from somebody else. That doesn't, no, that's not always the case. And so for me, it's this idea of what is your original thought? Who are you? Why are you picking up a book and reading it? Why are you turning on a podcast and listening to it? What are you, why are you watching the documentaries that you're watching in the first place? What is it that you're trying to drive in yourself? And if, if it's to become better, I get it, you know, because I've been there. I took sales training from multiple different people before I decided to stop and develop my own system even back when I was a salesperson, right? I listened to all the podcasts. I read all the greats. And there's some amazing ones out there, Zig and 
Carnegie. And I mean, those are amazing men. I believe they, they, they did very good things for the sales world, but I believe that there's a gap and there's a massive gap between those men and what's coming out today. And there are some great leaders out there today. Don't hear me wrong. This one always gets me in trouble because it gets everybody so butthurt, right? But the idea is, is that we need something as epic as what people had back in the 60s and 70s that we're selling. We need something to come along that takes us a different direction. We have lost touch as salespeople. And so there's nothing that I recommend right now, bro, except for that, that book, Whisper by Mark Batterson, who is kind of a silent mentor to me. And there's a great Netflix documentary series right now called Home Game that'll make you laugh and smile and cry all at the same time. And it's about cultures and it's about local cultures and it's about competition and it's about being the best. But most importantly, it's about the story you tell. And so if, you, if you're looking for something to take your game to the next level, whether it be listening, watching, reading, I would tell you to ask yourself, what story do you want to tell? And what story will be told about you before you start learning from other people? Okay, fair enough. I won't press you on this. How can people get hold of you? They can Google me, Dale Dupree. They can go to salesrebellion.com, click the about page. You might even find my cell phone number in there if you're lucky. They can head to linkedin.com backslash IN backslash copier warrior, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, everything and their mom at sales rebellion or backslash sales rebellion is the URL. Come find me. I'm even on TikTok. <laughs> Excellent. Dale, thank you so much. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I hope we can do this again. Absolutely. Thanks, Marcus. Brilliant. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or there's somebody that you would like me to interview, then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.